welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight, we're talking with Josh Parker on a subject that I, I, I don't think we've gone in-depth in this subject ever on this show. Um, okay. We're going to talk about snake digestion. So how this came about was I was listening to an episode of Corrales Radio, and Josh was a, um, was a guest on there, and they were talking about Candoya. Uh, yeah, mostly Candoya. And um, anyway, they're going through and, and they hit on this, this, the, like about mid show, they started talking, he, he started talking a little bit about snake digestion. And I was like, wow, that is an awesome topic for a show. So that's, I, I reached out and now we're, we're going to jump into that in a couple of minutes. Um, but uh, first, let me remind everybody that June 9th, is the Northeast Carpet Fest. Um, we are working on uh, getting the uh, the auction together. Uh, I reached out to Jeff Frederick, uh, and he is going to whip up a, another uh, awesome, I guess, uh, photo or uh, drawing for us so that we can get uh, T-shirts going. So we have them way before Carpet Fest. <laughs> so... We're going to screw this up again, and we're not going to get the truth right. I mean, you have way too much faith in us not screwing up. You figured up. by six years we should be able to get this No, I know us. I know I know. who's yeah. running this show, so yeah. Yeah, I guess the Miracle Carpet Fest even happens. Yeah, so, you know, God. No kidding. Uh, I'm probably <laughs> – I mean, me and you were talking about this, but we're probably going yep. to try to uh, – get somebody's help with the auction um and i guess at some point me and you got to talk about how we're doing it this year if we're doing anything different et cetera, et cetera. so uh so stay tuned for that um if you are interested in donating something to the auction um then just if you're donating out. and helping with carpet fest in any way shape or form yeah let us know and uh we will find something for you to do and of course, you get uh, our wonderful um, recognition and thanks. And uh, you are allowed to pick one free snake out of Eric's entire collection to take home with you at the Slow end down, of Starbucks. Slow down, buddy. <laughs> Whoa, now. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was. Uh, we'll get into uh, Tinley Park in a second, but yes. uh, I was pretty excited that. Um, I was able to get you and Andrew to pick something up pretty cool for me. And dude, I I'm blown away by these snakes. Um, Oh yeah. They were way too much fun at the show. (laughs) Like, Oh my God. Way too much fun. So Poplin pythons, not pipe Oh man, not Poplin carpet pythons, but just straight up Poplin pythons. Um, Um, Holy shit. They're just so you, just, just so you know, and uh-huh. uh, um, uh, you're, I'm telling you now because you'll forget by the time it happens. Mm-hmm. I did spend all of Tinley Park telling everybody who is normally within the carpet crew uh, mm-hmm. at the future Tinley Parks that uh, they are t- nothing but refer to them as IJs. No matter how many times you call them Pop One Carpets, like they could be <laughs> obnoxious about it. So um, yeah, they 
You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's uh, that's my uh, new addition, and you know, it's so cool because it yeah. it was like. Uh, I bought them last year sometime. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a slow burn. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely. And they're just, uh, first off, I think there was maybe one other pop one Python in the entire building aside from your two little ones. And they were, they're just, they were just so cool. Like I had to play with them behind the table after I picked them up. Um, your other one, I, I, I like kicked that thing into like the room. I, I mean, I didn't really take care of that thing at all. So, yeah. but those two, <laughs> I, I babied the hell out of them. So, I kind of figured as much. But uh, so, <laughs> so, so yeah. Real quick before we get um, Josh on here. Uh, so, how was Tinley Park? Tinley Park was awesome. Uh, it was uh, it was a little bit of a shorter trip than I would have liked because. Uh, Andrew is still kind of suffering from some of those injuries and he wasn't feeling up to it. So he decided to head home early, but in, in the short amount of time I was there, I was able to kind of uh, check out a lot of stuff. There was a ton of really, really cool animals at Tinley park. Uh, I saw, and it was one of those, I got there on Friday and I got in the door on Friday as part of the VIP thing. There were corn uh-huh. snake morphs, morphs I had never seen. There were blackheads. Um, do you remember we were talking to somebody and I forget who it was that we're talking about bird snakes, pair of those. And it was on a table where the guys were like setting up. So I'm like, I'm going to swing back around and see how, like how much those were going for. They were gone. I was gone for maybe about 10 minutes. They hit the table and then they were bought quickly. I'm like, dear wow. Lord. So, uh, there was a lot of cool stuff. Um, a lot of different stuff, but, uh, also some things that were definitely, uh, Lacking, uh, it seems to be a lot of lizards. Um, not a, no, uh, there were some green trees, but a lot of them looked like they were on tables where they were imports. Uh, a lot of cool stuff like um, the Madagascan hog noses, they were all over the freaking place. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> including my pocket. Um, there was uh, uh, so it was that kind of cool stuff. There was um, also some really good looking carpets uh, at both Todd's table. Uh, and at uh, Phil's table with Star Python, so I got to see all that kind of cool stuff they got going on there. Um, the auction was really cool. Uh, I got to kind of go through that. Uh, it, um, there were some awesome little collie birds that I kept sending to you, and uh, I probably should just sent them to Rob or something because then I would have gotten like a more explosive reaction. You know, <laughs> you were like cool, and I'm like, this is what this is what this is what it must be like when he texts me about IJ. So you know, it's like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm like, I feel bad now. It's like, there's, um, so, and then of course, Andrew knew a few people up there. So we got to go check out, uh, a pet store nearby where, uh, I call Sosa a bunch of turtles and some really cool stuff there. Uh, and then we got to go see his, uh, friend, Brian Waterloo, who I, I, he already agreed to come on the show. I just have to talk to you about it. Uh, and he breeds, um, lace monitors. Uh, Oh, and oh my god they are gorgeous creatures and so freaking cool so we got to check out his collection and uh you know mess around with like this is a fifteen thousand dollar lizard i'm like i don't want to hurt it it's like you know it's all that kind of cool stuff so there was 
it was a really good uh, thing. Uh, I hate the drive to Chicago. I would love to yeah. fly every single time. Uh, but the way back definitely did not take, uh, seemed to take a lot shorter. I did have a lot of reading because after I purchased the uh, Madagascar, I, I purchased a pair of Madagascan hog noses, the giant hog noses. That happened, and that can had we, to happen. I got can it. we Go ahead. can we tell the story real quick uh, about how Go that ahead. went down? <laughs> Go ahead. So, oh no, well, uh, <laughs> you do it. So in the background, there is uh, Riley um, is texting me pictures of. Um, his Madagascan hognose. And I was like, you know what? I said, I bet you Owen would really dig these. They look like they're a little bit bigger than hognose. You know, I said, so I said, they are, they're like the size of a corn snake or a king snake, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So (laughs) I, I, I I downloaded the pictures real quick and I sent them off to you and I was like, dude, check these out. You would probably like these. And you're like, oh my God, they're all over the place. <laughs> you're just like, yeah. uh, I hate you. I hate you. Why are you making exactly? These? <laughs> well, it was like the like I'm like they are kind of cool. And then I walked by, and there was a bunch of tables that had. I, I guess the importations around Madagascar have been lifted, so there were a lot of these guys at Tinley Park. So gotcha. I walked to the first table, and there are these big old adults, and I'm like, eh, those are cool. You know, about two hundred something each or something like that. I'm like, ah, oh, cool. Next table, there's more adults, and but they're a little bit cheaper. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I walk over to the next table. There's more, and there's more, and there's more. I'm like, you know, these things are awesome, but I really don't want to go and grab another pair of, you know, freaking, uh, you know, I really don't want another pair of freaking uh, wild-caught collier brids to deal with again and all this other stuff. So I'm like, you know, uh, and then I go by one table, and they have uh, – Captive born and bred babies, and I'm like, oh holy shit! <laughs> like, you know, that's, I'm like, oh well, that that solved that problem. And I I talked with the guy, I talked with the breeder, I did all this stuff. I I, I chewed his ear off for about like an hour, and the entire time I'm holding on to all three of these captive born and bred babies because I only had three. And I'm like, all right, you know, obviously there was some price talk and stuff like that, and I'm like, done. That I'm done. So I just did it, and I just <laughs> bought them took the pair and I'm like, okay. Then for the rest of the day, I'm like, ah, these things are cool. These things are cool. They're really kind of cool. I'm kind of glad I did it. And then I I, I told you, I'm like, I bought these and I don't know how fast you told Riley. Like, I don't know if you pivoted and told him immediately because like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, I put my phone down after I told you I got them. And like Riley's, you got them. I'm like, oh my God. So, and he just has been, blowing me up since then with all this research he's done all this other crap i'm never buying another snake that riley hasn't already gotten because oh my god everything i've ever needed has just been spoon-fed to me like i'm gonna try to get riley to start buying other shit that i want this way he can do all the legwork it was great (laughs) so and i'm like i'm like well riley there's like three different types he goes oh those are the three different species i'm like go on and that now i'm obsessed with all this crap because you know, I can't just have there. You're telling me that it's like liasis and there's multiple things in the classification. And, and now yeah. I'm totally screwed, but yeah. these things are so cool. Uh, they hood, not like a Cobra. Uh, they don't sit like up like 90 degrees. They kind of st- like hang out a little bit, almost like vertical, but up off the ground. 
and they hood from like the back of their head to about halfway down their body. They right. hiss and make a shit ton of noise and they come at you. And I got bit by one and my finger was itching for like an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm okay. I'm like, I'm like, Oh crap. I'm madly in love. I'm done. I'm so freaking done with these two. And I blame you and I blame Riley completely. Like, Oh dear God, <laughs> I will somehow figure out a way to get the two of you back and like make you buy something, but I just don't know what or when. And yeah, but dear God, that's cool. Nuts. That's cool. That should be like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, what is it? Like a snake, uh, snake connection. You know what I mean? Like, uh, check these out, <laughs> lay the seed well, down. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, it's horrible. It, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, and there was not, there was literally nothing else at the show that I was whipping my wallet out for, with the exception of those tiger uh, rat snakes. But then I found out that they were like crosses or mixes or something like that. So I'm like, eh. Those but, are cool. Like, oh dear God, they're so pretty. But yeah. it was it was so horrible. But like, if if I had walked into that show with enough uh, money to walk out with all three species of hognose, I would have. <laughs> like you know that right. that is a, that would have happened. So. Damn you! Cool. Damn you to hell! <laughs> so, cool, cool, cool. Other than that, fun trip. I, 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 I liked seeing everybody out there. Joshua, uh, Josh. I got to hang out with uh, him, Jeremy. Uh, I got to hang out with. I, I see Solana. I got to see Todd. I got to see Carrie. I got to see all their crew. I got to see and talk with uh, Starkey. So it was, I was bopping all over the place, and I very much enjoyed it. And I, I unfortunately will not be there. It sucks. Um, in Paris, uh, I saw him. So it was like, it, it sucks. And uh, obviously, you guys are going to have a great time. Um, uh, we have to work on getting that cardboard cutout of me so you can take it with you. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, <laughs> just put it in the back but you know it's like you know, it's one of those things uh, as shitty it's gonna be because i realized like i'm gonna miss october and then i'm not going out next march so i, I won't be back there till uh the, the following, following october. october and that sucks so um but I, i'm definitely glad i went out and got to see everybody so cool 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 yeah. cool well with the rate i'm going i might have to go with march and october with the season i'm having so <laughs> Gotta, I don't know. We'll see. That's because you got to clear out babies. You know, that's, that's, yeah. it's your own fault. You psycho. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but um, so cool. Uh, yeah, I think that's all we got. We're enough of us rambling. And uh, let's get Josh on here and let's talk. Let's talk snake digestion. Hey, Josh, welcome to Morelli Python Radio. Glad to have you. How you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Sure. So, uh, Josh, can you kind of give us a little bit of a, uh, overview of what got you started in reptiles? There's a few angles to answer that question. Um, Perfect. in general, I've always been into all kinds of animals, including the herps, but I was raised to the fear snake. So I had that terrifying, um, reaction to snakes. Like most people with a snake phobia do for a long time mm-hmm. until I, uh, decided I need to get it get over that and bought myself a baby ball python just to try to get over it and it quickly turned into an obsession and that's also the time that 
the crocodile hunter was just coming on TV and what he was doing is exactly what I wanted to do for a career. So he shaped my future quite a bit, but cool. that's, that's the basic part. I mean, just getting obsessed with snakes and already wanting to go in that direction for a career. It's awesome. So like, and that's actually uh, almost what you and I almost have the same exact thing. I was terrified of these guys uh, almost throughout high school. And then in college, I'm like, screw it. We're going to get over it by getting one. And then, yeah, complete exactly freaking one eighty. Yeah, so let's <laughs> do all that stuff. Um, so, uh, what is your um, reptile of choice these days? Like, what do you what are you working with? Uh, rattlesnakes are the main thing Holy as far God. as my professional interests go. Um, I've been doing research with rattlesnakes for, gosh, almost twenty years now, and so I, it, that started mainly with a. Uh, lab full of rattlesnakes in graduate school and so I still keep quite a few of those in my own collection just some of the diversity for educational purposes and stuff um but then before the rattlesnakes you know I got over my fear of snakes before graduate school and it was the pythons and boas that I first got into that I wanted some mm-hmm. slower snakes I didn't want the fast colubrids and stuff so uh the pythons and boas were it for a very long time until the rattlesnakes came along, and it's only been in the last 10 years or so that I really got into the colubrids at all, uh, both professionally and uh, personally. So that's where it started cool. with those. Cool. Cool. So, so what do you have in your personal collection? Um, they're a little scattered right now because I'm living in a – a house, I'm renting a house that I can't keep them in, so I've right. most of the rattlesnakes are in other people's like labs and stuff. And then uh, I am renting a, a room from someone else that lets me keep just my snakes there. And so I have cool. if they were all in one place, I would have about 65 different species. So I'm in it more for the diversity. I just love these things, and not so much for the breeding. However, I have been breeding the Solomon Island boas for a long time and that's why I was on the other show. Cool. That's very cool. Yeah, that was uh that was a really cool episode. That's a species that uh I don't know much about. I don't know, but uh definitely beautiful uh beautiful species for sure. Um Yeah. Definitely a niche market though and it probably has a lot to do with them not eating rodents right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh if you if you like the species, uh definitely uh you you sort of look past that kind of stuff, you know, I guess. <laughs> or yep. accept it. Yeah. Cool. Yep, the All right, just so, by the means. <laughs> yeah, we want to get into uh just talk about uh snake digestion and as far as you know, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, when you were on Corrales Radio, uh, that topic came up, and I just found it so fascinating. Uh, and it was just like a little tiny excerpt um, from from the show. So maybe you can—I yeah. I don't even know where to start, man. But uh, you know, maybe well, yeah, um, yeah. There's a—I mean, there's a lot of just general stuff from experience that people have found in their own private, non-professional collections that is certainly very valid and works. Uh, but then there's a the whole scientific side too is, is while I was in graduate school that that really took off. So people discovered this phenomenon that happened during their digestion and everybody got fascinated by it. There were physiology labs in Europe and U S and 
Brazil that were all kind of racing for the answer to figure out what's going on with them. Uh, it started uh, scientifically uh, just trying to figure out the energy budget. You know, where does all the energy in a food package go once you ingest it, no matter what species you are? It could be applied to anything, you know. So right. snakes were being used as the model first just because they are easy to keep in a lab, particularly the lion weight predators like rattlesnakes were the main thing they were working with. Um, all this would be quite different for colubrids, and we could talk about that a bit later on too. Uh, sure. Those lion weight predators uh, don't move much. You know, they don't they don't expend a lot of energy when they're not constricting something to kill. That's their main exercise. You know, otherwise they're just sitting in a good spot waiting for something to come along. And in general, mammals have a met- metabolic rate ten times that of any ectotherm, like any snake, and so they're already challenged in that way. And just the fact that their body does change temperature so much, that means that their digestive enzymes are going to be more or less effective at various temperatures as well. They don't work at all temperatures, you know. So there's right. a lot of aspects to it. But when they first started that, I don't know who it was that discovered the phenomenon um, that set everyone on fire, but uh, they discovered real quick that something was going on different in snakes. When they put them in these metabolic chambers to, meta- to measure their metabolic rate, uh-huh. Uh, I imagine before that there were some, you know, long ago there were ideas that, well, you can use a calorimeter and measure exactly how many calories are in a mouse, and then you could do the same thing for the feces that comes out on the other end, do the math, and you have your answer. But that very obviously was not what was going on as soon as they started experimenting with it because within 24 to 48 hours, they saw the, they saw the metabolic rate shoot up like seven, 800%. And the difference between a basal metabolic rate, like you sit in your chair as opposed to running or something, um, the difference between that resting metabolic rate and the peak metabolic rate rate during digestion was, uh, you know, equivalent to that of a horse racing, a horse race. You know, from its basal metabolic rate, peak metabolic rate during the race, that's where you see that kind of a difference. So while it's not the same absolute numbers, the the difference in resting and active rate was that big. So it was just incredible. Uh, And it peaked out real quick, you know, within the first first day or two, depending on the temperature you have them at. And then also depending on that temperature, uh, it lasts either more than a week, you know, like 10 days, or if it's a little bit cooler, it could last over two weeks. So it really depends on the temperature. And and in the lab, they were experimenting with constant temperatures, but lots of different temperatures, different treatments, you know. So we know in the lab at constant temperatures what they are, because in in the wild, they're going to be fluctuating and be more of an average temperature. So uh, that was where it all started. And they were first trying to figure that out in, in the context of an energy budget. You know, where is all this energy going? Because suddenly tons of energy was getting sucked up right in the beginning before they could have even started the breakdown of the meal. So they have to expend a huge amount of energy just to get digestion started. And I'm sure most of us in the pet trade have, well, in the snake trade have fed uh, an emaciated snake, an underweight snake and had them die not long after you fed it to them without them regurgitating Uh or anything because they didn't have that much energy in their fat reserves and stuff to support that and it kills them. So it's literally this, phenomenon that kills them if they don't have enough energy to start that fire to start their digestive process you know so huh. fascinating right off the bat that wow. is shocking so, and something so, i would have never thought of so is there a way yeah. is it, it 
I know this is kind of taking it off topic, but like, let's say you have an emaciated snake. Is, is there a way that you can a smaller meal or, or is it just, there's no coming back at that point? Yeah. At that point, there's no coming back. Uh, if they okay. regurgitate, it does seem to, to stop the process. Um, I do gotcha. remember a little bit of that. Cause once in a while they would regurgitate and you'd see the, the graph that the, was generated by the data change a bit uh-huh. but yeah i mean it goes through the roof within 48 hours so it's that fast and they're not usually regurgitating that fast you know they're waiting right. till later when they decide the meal's too big or something and then they'll regurgitate so yeah it's it's uh all or nothing almost huh at least in those first couple of days wow jeez that's during that process, though, it's not just the metabolic rate that's increasing. Part of the reason for the metabolic rate increasing and the use of all that energy is they actually have to grow their organs. Because between meals, especially if it's been a long time between meals, at least a few weeks, uh-huh. then they reabsorb all those tissues. You know, they're just too expensive to maintain. And that wow. is one of the main differences why mammals' metabolic rate is so high is because we maintain those tissues and have to eat constantly, you know. So when, they're, right. when they don't have any food in their intestines, when they're completely done breaking it down, they actually reabsorb all that extra tissue of their organs, all their organs, their heart, their liver, their intestines, everything. is All those things like double in size during this process. So it's crazy physiological activities going on in, in the size of organs, the metabolic rate. It's just crazy. Holy shit, that blows my mind. So yeah. <laughs> all their organs just shrink and grow according to... Wow, that's yeah, that's, that's crazy. Right. So it's a really demanding thing, and that's why I say Jeez. I started to take that into consideration when I was feeding my snakes. You know. Yeah, well, th- that was one of the things that um, that I heard you say that you talked about your approach uh, with feeding to allow them to finish the process before you try to feed again. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I would imagine that's based from species to species. But what is that process that you know that it's finished? Is, is there some kind of cue. Yeah, I can or... give you some basic. I can give you some basic temperatures and timelines, anyway. Sure. Um, and this again is based on lion weight predators uh, because it's, it's. Although I have not seen the data myself, and I'm not sure if any. I imagine somebody must have done the same experiments with colubrids, but I just haven't seen that data. But just knowing them by keeping them, they're much more. You know, they're active all day long. They're constantly searching for their food, and they're eating as frequently as they find it. So. That's why they need to be fed a lot more frequently in captivity. They'll start dropping weight a lot faster than a python or a boa will for that reason. Mm -hmm. So they just have a naturally higher metabolic rate for that reason. So I'm speaking towards the pythons, boas, and rattlesnakes and other lion weight, cold-blooded predators, you know. This extends to lizards and stuff too, by the way, crocodilians and all that, anything ectothermic to that degree. Wow, okay. uh, the basic temperatures they experimented with anyway would be uh, 30 degrees was one of the higher temperatures that they would experiment with. And I did these experiments in my labs too. I've actually collected my own data on this stuff and reproduced what everybody else was doing. Um, But 30 degrees Celsius, which is what about mid eighties, 86 degrees or something like that. Fahrenheit on that side. Um, At that rate, they within seven days, they've come back down off of that peak, uh, but it doesn't stabilize back down to resting metabolic rate for probably 10 days approximately. If you drop okay. the temperature just down to like 77 or 78, the upper 70s, that stretches it, that stretches it out over two weeks now. 
you know, we're talking 16 to 20 days then. So temperature really has a huge effect on it. Uh, and so depending on what you're keeping your snakes at and, you know, how much it fluctuates each day, that average mm-hmm. temperature is what you'd look at and what you would expect at the end. Like, for instance, I keep my – almost all my reptiles don't have their own heat sources unless they need a hot spot. Most of them right. I just kept at the reptile room temperature, which is – I try to keep usually around 86 degrees or something like that. So I'm Okay. And and their body temperature is probably just a little bit under that. So that's why I'm expecting a good two weeks until they're really done and back down to normal. And at that point they've they've assimilated all the materials from their food. You know, they've they've added to their fat reserves and all that. Now they've got the energy for another one. So that that's kind of my thinking anyway. Okay. Are there any observations as far as behavior of what the snake is doing once it's back to that resting metabolic rate? Yeah, that uh, depends. Let's see, the rattlesnakes were the ones we were working with mainly, and they did get, start to get a little more active at that time. Um, okay. They, and they often shed and defecated. You know, once that peak, once they were back to resting metabolic rate, that's when the shedding and the and the uh, defecating would they usually do that pretty quickly afterwards. If it was a big enough meal, if it's a smaller meal, it might take another meal to push them into that. But if it was a big enough meal, they're going to shed and defecate pretty quickly after that. So you can, so I've kind of used that as my rule of thumb when I see that they have at least defecated, if not shed. And both of those two things happen pretty close to each other anyway with the size meals I'm giving my snakes. And so then I know they're ready for another one. So, just what happens to the snake when you're feeding when it's not completely finished digesting and then you feed it another uh prey item is 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 that bad for them or is that I well I I can't say it's bad for them because you know okay. people have I know a lot of people that'll feed snakes weekly for the whole life of the snake and sure, I don't know right. if that shortens their lifespan or anything like that, but I haven't heard of a whole lot of problems other than I've heard of a few problems with obesity, maybe killing snakes or something, just too much feeding in that respect. But that's why I'm saying I, um, other things work, but that it's a lot of stress. And so I'm just trying to minimize the stress since you never know what is going to push your snake into the stress zone and cause health problems. So well, that's certainly going to be taxing their system and causing that kind of stress. Gotcha. And that and that's normal feeding like once or weekly or something like that. It would be one thing, but what about like I, I want to say that the the quintessential like power feeding, where it's like every two or every other day. Is that could you see that as being detrimental to the internal organs? Um, I wouldn't say detrimental to the internal organs, but they're going to be okay. running hot the whole time, um, right? So peak. You know, that'd be like the equivalent. The only way, you, I mean, this is just logic and not necessarily uh, data-driven science or anything, but they don't run or anything. So that would, the only way to really judge what's going on with them metabolically is to compare other things with that difference in their metabolic rate. And those other animals that are have that kind of a difference are sprinting or something, you know, and that's not something that could be sustained. So it's got right. to do something in that respect. I'm guessing it would be more of a synergistic thing. If something else is going on to also stress them, then this isn't, then that's not going to help out. Um, I just do everything I can to limit stress because that's usually what leads to health problems. Right. So as far as the size of the meal, uh, 
what would you rec- what would you recommend or what would you say would kind of be the best for them? I I've always been one to give the largest food I can at any one time. Okay. And that way they're definitely going to shed and defecate and I know exactly where they're at. If I give some medium-sized one, then it may take two of those meals before they do either of those things. Uh, I mean, I've got a good feel for when they're going to be done with it, even if they don't do those things, but um, that would be something to consider. Now, there would be an end that's too small. I mean, if you're going just okay. too small, then that the energy that they're getting out of the meal is not going to be enough after they've just spent all that energy to digest that meal. So you, that's where you get the the snakes that almost don't grow. I mean, they'll stay alive because yeah. you're feeding them, but they're not on a growth diet, you know. So you really stunted them that way, and I imagine that could be pretty stressful too. Yeah, I when it comes see that. when it comes to uh, the the idea of stunning growth, is that is that uh, is that bad for especially? Let's think about a female for like the future, as far as you know, her producing eggs or um, mm-hmm. or offspring. Certainly, I mean it's just it's yeah. an energy budget again. That's where you get into the bigger picture of that, and so if they don't have enough energy for digestion, you know, I'm sh- there, there's probably some amount reserved for that before they would be reproductively receptive. So to, mm-hmm. you know, their, their reproductive system probably uh, wouldn't get started in the case of low energy reserves or something. Uh, and right. that would be, I mean, I see this in the wild where a, a rattlesnake just had a litter of babies. And then depending on drought conditions and stuff like that, she may not be ready to have babies again for five years. Uh, so, that would play into that because she's got enough energy to digest her meals and stuff, but she's not receptive. She, her reproductive system doesn't even turn on to attract males or anything. So right. certain, there must be some kind of checks or balances system in there for females when it comes to reproductive output. Uh, as far as males go, I'm sure uh, they are probably not as sensitive because their reproductive output aren't in big shots like that. They're, they're just producing sperm all day. Right. So is it, is, is it do their reproductive organs kind of shrink when they're not being used as well? It's like are, are they absorbing oh, yeah, that? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's kind of the strategy for most of those ectotherms. Any of the organs they're not using, they da- mm-hmm. they downsize, they down they downregulate it, and really, they, yeah. When they need to use them, boom, they fire them up. So, for instance, a wild example, the rattlesnakes the temperate rattlesnakes like up in the mountains that den in large numbers and you find them basking out in the sun uh the species i study mostly that's in colorado wyoming and utah the midget faded rattlesnake they're kind of an extreme because they're at high elevation and latitude and so they actually sit in the sun for a couple months before they decide to do anything they they need to kind of turn on all those systems and for those that have enough energy reserves they'll become reproductively mature uh, if they're not mature yet, or they'll get those systems ready for an event. But then those that just had babies the year before that don't quite have the energy reserves, they never go into that. So there is something that's turning on and off switches, you know, like that, the organs themselves. I wonder, so what's your thoughts when it comes to like animals that are cycle feeding? Is that, is that, you know, is that good for them as far as long-term health? Is that, you know, something that we what should do you mean by replicate? cycle feeding? I don't, I don't think well, I've heard that before. 
I, I guess like, um, you know, uh, I think like, uh, I've heard Vin Russo talk about it with boas. I, I've done it with my pythons to where, you know, like right before the, you know, breeding season is coming up, you're feeding heavier. Whereas the rest of the year, you're not feeding as uh, heavy. Yeah, I see. Yeah. That, that makes sense for a breeder, I suppose. Uh, that, I mean, you can really boil it down to, you know, calories in, calories out. So if you mm-hmm. if you really ramp up the size or frequency of their meals, they're definitely going to put on size and energy reserves a lot faster. I mean, it, it okay. can be as simple as that, too. Okay. All right. Interesting. So, you know, we were talk- we've talked about this before on the show, and obviously it's just our observations of different people that we've had on and stuff, but they talked about – how feeding a larger size meal equates to growth because the snake must grow larger to have an easier time to, you know, subdue that prey um, that, that they're taking down. Is there, is there any truth to that or is that, you know, that, that sounds like more faulty logic to me. Um, Gotcha. Is now there's some truth to it. Let me, and, and maybe it's just the way I read it or heard it or something, but let me, tell you the parts that would be uh true or not um it's not in it's not infinite obviously uh-huh. i mean snakes have their average size for their species so they're right. so what the, what you're talking about sounds more like an evolutionary thing so yes that that is the difference between some species they evolved to take larger prey but that's an evolutionary story for the whole species gotcha. um when you talk within a species um you know they some individuals will specialize on birds, others will specialize on lizards, and there is some plasticity there where if they're eating large prey items from the time they're very small um, and there's a lot of stretching going on with the jaws and the throat and stuff like that, um, uh-huh. they will get larger heads to accommodate larger meals. So we do see that happening also. There's actually been research there. In fact, the lab that really solve the whole energy budget thing with all that digestive stuff. Uh, he had some students working on that as well and show that there is plasticity where that does cause a change in size, but not necessarily body size. They're still going to be within the range for that species, but certain right. parts like their heads and throats might be getting bigger because they're expecting a bigger meal. So they, they just call that some phenotypic plasticity. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay. What about as far as the idea of, you know, you see a lot of like, especially like uh, I'm going to talk about like uh, Australian pythons. You see as babies, they're eating a lot of like lizards and, you know, uh, reptiles and skinks and stuff like that. Is that because Mm -hmm. it's easier to digest? Um, Is there or it's just the size of the prey or it has more than the size of the prey. They're certainly okay. going to take anything that fits into their mouth that they can catch at that time. I mean, most species are pretty omnivorous in that respect. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, a lot of juvenile snakes will eat lizards first because they're the only thing that size. The, the rodents are mostly going to be adult rodents. They're not going to be coming across too many babies. And so you have a big big size gap there. So like that rattlesnake species that I study goes through a shift. Like they call it a onto genetic shift in diet where they're eating uh-huh. something different as a juvenile and completely switch to a different diet when they become adults. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's a si- totally a size thing. Gotcha. As far um, as digestive efficiency, um, it's, I don't 
think they have any more or less trouble digesting things. They're, they can either digest it or they can't. Like they can't right. digest hair or any <clears throat> form of keratin, really, uh, scales and stuff. And if you're looking at the nutritional value of a lizard compared to a small mammal, small mammals mm-hmm. will be a lot more nutritionally valuable because there's more that they can actually digest. And, and a lot of it could probably be more easily digested if that is something. I'm just not sure that they have more trouble. It's just there's a lot more scales and keratin in mm. a lizard than there is in a small mammal. Of course, they have all their hair, so, you know, absolute numbers are maybe as much, but there's a lot more inside of that package. Right. So I mean, a lot of those small lizards seem like they're just skin and bones, you know, and the skin they're yeah. not going to be digesting much of. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, uh, let's say you said hair being non-digestible and stuff like that, there are yeah. certain pythons like uh, white lips that will actually regurgitate hairballs. Is there anything that makes you feel like that is something that, that either all snakes are doing and we're missing, or is it, you know, what, what, why do you think those guys do it and it hasn't been observed in other species? Gosh, in 20 years with 65 different species, I've never seen that happen. That was news to me when I saw you mention that. All right. Um, <laughs> Uh, I know it's a, it's a huge part of their feces because they can't digest it, but I've never heard of anything doing that. I mean, I've seen snakes regurgitate things that are almost completely digested, so there's not much but the hair left. Right. right. I've seen that before, but I've never seen just a furball, you know. So I'm <laughs> not sure about that, if, if there's something to that or not. That's not something I've experienced or even read about. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, it is a strategy by certain reptiles, the the ones we call birds. I mean, the raptors and the owls and stuff, that's, they regurgitate most of the indigestibles, which is mostly hair. So they're uh-huh. coughing up furballs, so to speak. But I haven't huh. heard of snakes doing that. Not saying they don't. I just yeah. haven't come across that. Right. Uh, it's weird, and it's not okay to watch. But, um, yeah, but <laughs> it's, it's one of those <laughs> things. Um it, it yeah, it's it just I, I we never that is something I think we mentioned in the show and we have yet to get an answer for. It's one of the great mysteries of the show. But yeah, well, uh, that hair is going to be the last stuff to go through the digestive system, and so uh, if you imagine that soup of digestive enzymes in their stomach and intestines, um, uh, literally just liquefies everything that is digestible, which is everything except the hair. So it's if it's really late in digestion and they decide to regurgitate, you're only going to get hair out of that. So it could be something like that. And and, and my my thing, my always my theory has been that we are trying to feed like European bred rodents to an Indonesian python that would probably never ever see them. So they might not just be able to take the hair. So I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, um, as far as uh, what kind of role does water have in the snake digestion? Is it important because i mean a lot of times i'll add fresh water to my snake's cages and the second the fresh water hits they're all over it yeah yeah i've had the same experience and most species i keep seem to be picky and like fresh water better than older water even yeah Um, so water's certainly important but i mean with the, the diversity that i keep i see a whole spectrum where the desert adapted species it's less important um, as long as they're getting fed regularly, they get everything they need from their meal. If they're not getting fed regularly, then they may drink as much as they can. And um, 
or if there's some opportunity for dehydration, just getting too hot or something between meals, they'll drink as well. But if, if they're kept in relatively, you know, not too dry of conditions and are fed regularly, the, the desert adapted species are one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are, you know, rainbow boas are the ones that I've seen that have the largest demand for humidity and water and stuff like that. And, and they drink a bunch and they usually take a long drink right after they're finished swallowing their food, you know? So it seems to be more important to them. And so I think that has more to do with just the evolution of the species and whether they're a, a dry adapted species or not. Um, and I, the rainbow, rainbow boas are also like disgusting. Like, you know, they will smear it like all over their cage. Is that something, uh, you know, that it may be taken into account that they're just kind of like, I don't know, leaking. I don't know, but you know, is it, know. Do they, yeah. do they maybe have a faster metabolic rate or something like that. I don't have reason to believe that the rainbow bows do. There's, there's, they're just as much of a lion weight predator as most of the rattlesnakes and other bows and pythons. So anything that fits that category, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, I wouldn't expect that. There's going to be some differences. For instance, those Solomon Island boas, uh, they yeah. have shown that they have uh, an even slower metabolism than than <laughs> average. I mean, it's still within the spectrum, but it's, okay. it's even slower, and that's why it takes them forever to to shed their skin and. Uh, they like colder temperatures, so it, it could have more to do with just preferring colder temperatures. That they're not as efficient with digestion anyway. Works best for them, but just in the range of things, is not all that efficient. So, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns to it, but those are what I'm. That's what I'm reading anyway. Okay. Uh, had the, the, to your knowledge, have there been any studies that uh, kind of show what what temperature snakes need? Uh, while dig- while digesting food, um, I haven't seen any critical limits or anything. That, that would be hard to determine. It would require an ecological study in the field, too. I imagine to really okay. put it into context uh, and actually bring into the equation the fluctuation of day and night temperatures and all that. So, yeah, I don't think that answered your question. What was it again? <laughs> Have there been any studies that show what temperature? is oh, like yeah. preferred for snake digestion. Yeah, I haven't seen that, but I have seen lower ends where they, you know, at certain temperatures, they are not going to be breaking things down as efficiently because the enzymes just aren't going to work as well at lower temp of the molecules. Um, and I know that probably more importantly, they can't assimilate all those, they can't absorb all those nutrients as well at lower temperatures either. Uh, I see that more in lizard species than snake species, um, but I imagine it's true for snakes as well. Okay. Is there? Do you have any thoughts on why um, uh, lizards? You know, we've we we give them supplements and stuff, but it seems that with snakes, that that has never really been, uh, you know, thought about or pushed ahead or is. Is there well, do you have any thoughts on that? When it comes to snakes, uh, part of their low maintenance lifestyle for keepers is that they're mm-hmm. eating whole prey, and so they're getting right. everything they need, uh, okay. including the water in most cases. Uh, but when it comes to lizards, they're eating a much more artificial diet. They're eating a mass-produced cricket or cockroach or something like that that probably doesn't have all the nutrients that their natural diet would. And so supplements make sense then. 
I, gotcha. uh, I don't know that there's actually been any studies to see if the supplements actually help them because, uh, you know, most human supplements when it comes to vitamins and everything are all just a you know, bunch of BS just to get your money. They're just getting washed out of our system because just a half-assed diet is enough to get what you need. Uh, right. That may not be the case with lizards because we know that those those food items definitely don't have certain nutrients or they're low in certain nutrients or something. So supplements make sense. But, you know, too much supplement can be a really bad thing too. You know, putting too much powder on your crickets or something could could cause some problems. Would there? So I'm thinking of a species like Boland's pythons or some of these harder to breed species. Would that have anything to do with diet or something that they're lacking in their diet that could, you know, keep them from developing follicles to eggs, et cetera? I don't think so. I think that has more to do with uh, stress and captive um, husbandry, just not being quite right or something. Uh, Gotcha. For a couple of reasons, I think that I've seen other pythons. Um, I mean, I don't know if you remember with the ball pythons back in the '90s. No one could figure out how to breed them at first, and then uh-huh. suddenly, boom! <laughs> they figured out the the recipe, and it's super easy to reproduce. You know, so it could just right. be something like that. They just haven't worked out all the variables yet. Um, but food would be the last thing I would suspect because, again, that's a species that's eating a whole food. You know, the whole body and getting everything they need. Uh, and it doesn't matter that it's this species of small mammal or that species of small mammal. All mammals are going to have roughly the same nutrients, you know? Oh, now, okay. if there's a difference so, between lizards and small mammals, then that's a big dietary difference, you know? Which is what you're seeing in some of the, like, uh, say, black-headed pythons or something like that. You know, I guess that's pretty taxing on their system, all that uh, <laughs> uh, mammalian prey. Um, I guess for the long haul would be would be bad for them, right? No, I don't. I wouldn't say that. Uh, I mean, no? okay. those snakes that have specialized on like snakes and lizards and stuff will still take mm-hmm. small mammals and everything just as readily. They have just mm-hmm. evolved to use that food source, which is a food source that their competitors didn't evolve to use, and so that's more of an gotcha. evolutionary story too. Um, no, in, in that sense, I would still believe that a I mean a small mammal I think is going to have everything that a lizard has and more I don't think it's totally different I just think that the lizards are you know less nutrients more undigestible stuff like that okay all right what you know another thing that just popped into my head randomly and we've talked to a couple of uh green tree python uh keepers and stuff and they've talked about how that they've found um, shed teeth in the feces. Um, any thoughts on why that would be happening? Um, oh, that's very common. In fact, if you start doing that regularly, almost every uh, piece of feces you're going to be taking out of your cage is probably going to have teeth in them. Um, really? Depending on the okay. species. I, 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 there's probably some species variability. I'm most familiar with the rattlesnakes when it comes to that uh, respect. Right. You know, little teeth from other snakes. I didn't really think about that. And I, you know, pythons and stuff. I imagine that they can replace them, but rattlesnakes replace them all the time. I mean, they'll they'll have two or three fangs behind the fangs that they're using, ready to go, like a shark or something. You know, so they're right. much more likely to do that because I imagine the pythons and stuff are, depend on their teeth just as much and probably have some replacement. I just have not looked into it to see if they do it also just assuming they are, which is not always the best thing to do. But, um, <laughs> gotcha. you know, rattlesnakes, the, the teeth in general for snakes are pretty brittle. 
And so they'd have right. to replace them if they're going to live the, their long life because they generally yeah, have imagine. long lives. I mean, they're they're having to subdue their prey with their mouth, so I would imagine <laughs> they need those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all they have to do that with. And with right. the rattlesnakes, it makes sense with the fangs because those are, you know, they're movable. They fold them up and then bring them out, and so they're not tightly articulated in the first place, uh, uh-huh. and they're brittle. And it's a pretty powerful strike that when they slam the prey with those teeth pointing out, you know. So it probably happens a lot more in rattlesnakes, but yeah, that's a really common thing and something that I would expect to be normal. Okay. And is the thought is it just that ahead, it's Owen. more I was like, is it just that it's more noticeable cuz I usually tend to only see like the one species that seems to be just chock full of teeth uh oh. around the winter time when they're not eating so much is it just because maybe there's nothing really in there or they're just so empty. It's really noticeable now. I, I mean, I, I don't like if you have any kind of theories with that. Yeah, that that would be, just be a guess for me. I mean, maybe the numbers lined up so there's just a bunch of them ready to go at that time, and as soon as they really put some pressure on their jaws, they came out. But no, I, I haven't experienced that myself, so I couldn't tell you for sure. I, w- I mean, it's not often that we get to talk to somebody that's, uh, you know, specializes in rattlesnakes. So I thought it would be cool to talk on talk about them a little bit. So basically, yeah. I've read that the thought, uh, the speculation of venom has evolved to help with digestion. Is that is that accurate? There's actually been studies on those too. In fact, while I was in grad school, uh, my wife, part of her master's degree, was trying to figure that out and theirs was all their data was inconclusive and I haven't heard that anyone else came um you know it, it was not significant in all the data I've ever seen um I mean it makes sense it's one of those logical progressions to think uh-huh. that that would be the case because certainly their venom causes tissue mass tissue destruction like digestion mm-hmm. does in fact the venom proteins are very much like digestive enzymes you know Mm-hmm. Um, but the studies don't show that. Um, in fact, it's during, you know, they would inject the venom into the prey and then look at the metabolic rate and how long it takes them to come down off of that, what we were talking about earlier, and they didn't see any significant difference. Um, so the more recent venom studies going on now have been uh-huh. to figure out, you know, it seems like snakes, rattlesnakes and well not just rattlesnakes but you know the most venomous snakes in the world some of those australian ones and stuff why are they so hot you know if if you say they can kill 10,000 mice but they only need to eat one mouse why is it so potent uh so the the myth was generated that they just have all this killing power and they don't need it but the new studies have shown that they have exactly what they need to kill their specific wild type prey all the lab studies up to that point were using those little white mice in labs, which are not natural prey, did not co-evolve right. with that species to become resistant to it at all. So if you look at the uh, actual natural prey of those snakes, drop for drop, they have only exactly what they need. It's not overkill at all. So it's like an so evolution kind of arms a, race. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's pretty cool. So also on that kind of, I mean, if we're going to get mythos of venom out of there, the 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 myth of the baby rattlesnake unloading its entire venom gland per strike is that complete bull or like there's always that thing yeah. of like, oh the babies are more dangerous crap so well it depends on exactly what they say there's two sides to that okay. uh, is their venom more toxic and deadly than the adults and are they 
do they have no control and they're just releasing it all? Those are kind of two sides to that. Um, the data I've seen shows that they can meter their venom just like the adults can. You know, they're not just going to put all their venom into everything uh, with one bite. Um, so that one's mostly a myth as far as I know, at least the data I've seen. And the other side of it, is their venom more deadly than the adult? So, you know, are they more dangerous in that respect? Uh, the answer for mostly is yes on that because they have that shift in their diet. Those uh, cold-blooded prey types like other snakes or lizards or whatever, usually it's going to be lizards in that ontogenetic shift, not other snakes. But the point that they're ectothermic takes a lot uh, more potent venom to stop them as fast as they need to stop them than a warm-blooded animal just because, you know, they're 10 times slower at, at, at absorbing things and their whole metabolism is that much slower. So they need something a lot hotter to stop them fast enough so that they don't lose them or something after the bite. Right. So yes, their venom is generally hotter than the adults. And then all species that I know of except one, uh, in fact, the species I studied, the midget faded rattlesnake, that's the only one where the juvenile venom does not shift when they turn into the adults because the adults are dwarfed and even the adults still eat mostly cold blooded things, but Uh all other rattlesnakes and stuff their venom composition changes significantly from the time, you know, when they, when they become sexually mature approximately, uh, their venom composition changes entirely because they don't need, uh, it's not that they don't need it as hot. They might just need a different cocktail or something. So they can change, you know, those, that biological clock that would kick on with puberty, if that's what you call it in a snake, um, <laughs> changes the composition or at least uh, makes it more appropriate for the small mammals, which when tested, uh, on other things is seems to be less toxic. So those are the two sides of that. Hmm. Hmm. So I, is there, I, I'm not that versed, well-versed in rattlesnakes. So I'm sort of, you know, just throwing out, uh, is there anywhere where species of rattlesnakes overlap with each other and sort of have like, uh, uh, you know, uh, they breed together. Um, yep. And, Okay. Fact, really? Yeah, I've been working. That's specifically my research for the last few years now, and I'm actually on a big NSF grant right now to do, you know, to really work that out better. Um, previously, like I don't know, even ten years ago, most geneticists uh-huh. and otherwise they they stayed away from contact zones because the genetics gets crazy for all the hybrids. You get all uh-huh. the hybrid behaviors and appearances and all that, so they just stayed away from them. Now everybody's interested in them, trying to figure out if these hybrid zones are important to evolution and speciation and stuff like that. So um, that's the studies I'm involved with now. There are generally um, very large hybrid zones between closely related species of any kind, not just snakes. Uh, The more distantly related the species are, then there may be a barrier there and they can't make hybrids. So if you're looking Mm -hmm. at temperate rattlesnakes, like most of the western rattlesnakes, which Mm -hmm. are, I don't know, eight or nine different snakes now. Mm -hmm. Um, They're all pretty closely related based on the last ice age, and they all have big hybrid zones between them. Whereas if you look at all the diversity of rattlesnakes, like down in Arizona, down kind of below where the extent of the ice sheets were, they were co-evolving for much longer and partitioning the resources and becoming different over greater periods of time. So a lot of those Arizona snakes don't hybridize because they're more distantly related. Um, so you get you get a, a spectrum. Does that affect the venom? 
or is it it does close yeah enough? in fact that's how we first detected the hybrids i was working on a different study uh that kind of led into all this hybrid work and uh mm-hmm. because i was collecting samples from a different state and found a hybrid zone and the quickest you know it's because it was just an aside, it wasn't part of that project. I sent him to my Venom buddy, and he um, he broke down the composition. And because the two species that were hybridizing, their venom compositions were so different. That midget fader rattlesnake that I've studied mostly is almost entirely neurotoxic, whereas the other one isn't neurotoxic at all. And so there's a big difference between their venom. And so we see those middle, like a few different combinations of the two, where we get some hybrids have just the venom from one species. Some have just from the other. Some have a 50-50 mixture. There's lots of different things that happen to the venom composition because of that hybridization. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty huh. cool, but we don't have a lot of answers on that yet. Do gotcha. they look completely different than, like, you know, if it was a diamondback hybrid, that even have diamonds on its back? Or are we talking, like, they're some kind of a... Do. Okay. It's some you can tell. Um, uh-huh. like if you look at the hybrids between eastern diamondback rattlesnakes and timber rattlesnakes, they look like mm-hmm. something totally different. They look very much like a different snake. Um, the closely related species that I work with, these western rattlesnakes, though, uh, seem to be more of just dominant recessive traits. And, you know, what was dominant in one species might be recessive in the other. And so you'll get that dominant trait from one species and not the recessive from the other. It'll be covered up, you know. So what I saw were a lot of snakes that didn't look like hybrids. Instead, they looked like one or the other, but their genetics and their venom composition told us otherwise. So, again, it's much more complicated than you want, but that's (laughs) always the case. A big spectrum of things. Right, right. That's that's, no, that's, pretty that's, cool. that's 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 really cool. I've never heard of, uh, I never even thought of hybridized uh, rattlesnakes. Is uh, just I thought they just left each other alone, but some do. That's awesome. Some just don't even. Yeah. It doesn't even. There's not direct competition between most snakes anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like in Arizona, I could be walking up a wash and see three different species right on top of each other, just kind of ignoring each other, not hybridizing, just hunting the same areas and stuff. So yeah, you get it all. Isn't there, um, don't they, don't they strike the prey and venomate the prey and then, you know, the prey goes off and then somehow they can track the prey, um, you know, for quite a distance away. How does, how does that work? Yeah. There's a lot of research on that. It took them a while to figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, now, there are some species, though, that specialize more on birds. There's even some individuals within species mm-hmm. that specialize more on birds than everything else. And uh, they'll have a different venom to knock down birds really fast because they're not even leaving a scent trail, so they have to knock them down really fast. So in some cases, they're using venom that knocks them down fast, depending on, you know, not, not any of the rattlesnake species I know, but other, you know, arboreal venomous snakes that eat mostly birds. That would be the case. The other side mm-hmm. of that is most of those will also hang on to it. Uh, birds aren't going to cause a lot of damage when they're held on to, especially if they've injected venom, so that way it doesn't get away. Whereas small mammals, they can inflict a lot of damage, and so they usually let them go, uh, strike them fast, let them go and die, and then track them. And um, they call, I believe, the name of the protein. There's, so there's actually proteins in their venom meant only for tracking. 
Wow. Um, and if I, if I remember right, they're called disintegrins. Uh, I can't remember exactly. It's not exactly my specialty. My, you know, I kind of depend on my venom buddies for that. Specialty. <laughs> but I've, I've heard enough gotcha. of it to be able to talk about it a little. And yeah, if I remember right, they're called disintegrins and that's a, actually a protein in their venom um, that they can track. And it seems to be specific to the individual too. So they don't necessarily track somebody else's meal. And so that, when you see them wow. clicking, following the trail what? that that animal ran, yeah, it's something in their <laughs> venom that they, that actually does that. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. That is insane. <laughs> I mean, with their heat pits, but what? All right. That's nuts. Yeah. The heat <laughs> pits are more for before the strike. Yeah, because the That's prey would be cool. dead, right? They would lose that. Well, yeah, but I thought, like, you know, well, not dead immediately. They should go track it by the heat signature or something like that. But remember, I'm just arrogant. I have no idea. So yeah. I remember seeing a show. I can't remember. I, I just remember it was Rattlesnakes and Squirrels. And they were, oh, man, I can't remember. Do you remember anything about that? And something about something There's that a co-evolution. The squirrel- yeah, um, most of that research been in, has been in Southern California and right. other parts of California, too. Uh, the guy that has really pioneered all that research is down in San Diego. Um, but, yeah, that, that whole story was more about the coevolution and the arms race that you mentioned earlier because those ground squirrels are more tolerant of those venoms that they've been uh, subjected to living with those snakes that use their burrows and eat their babies and stuff like that. So that that's more of a story of coevolution and the arms race of venom and and resistance. Okay. That's and what cool. about the what about the whole uh, idea of rattlesnakes not rattling uh, anymore? Mm. Is that is there any truth to that? No, that that's a big myth. Everything that's going on now has been going on for a very long time. We haven't influenced their evolution to that degree yet. Um, gotcha. Having said that, there are some species that are already going down that road and have been long before us. There's an uh-huh. island species down in the Sea of Cortez that has all but lost its rattle. But their food source are birds. They're climbing through trees. The rattle could make noise, and so they have reasons to be quiet. Uh, and they don't have a lot of predators or you know, the, the rattle is thought to have evolved to, to warn things that would step on them and cause them damage, or predators uh-huh. for that matter, but mainly so that, you know, they don't get stepped on. And you don't have, at least in their evolution on that island, you didn't have any of those hooved animals either. So two things going on there that pushed them in the direction of losing their rattle. You also have the pygmy rattlesnakes of the southeast who have all but lost their rattle too. I mean, they can form little tiny rattles, but they all fall off every other shed or something like that. They're just so small and have a different way of life that they don't really need them. Um, but then most of the other rattlesnakes in between certainly need them because they're larger snakes and they live in areas with a lot of grazing mammals and, and perhaps the, the it helps a little bit with predators, that kind of thing. But yeah, gotcha. you know, they haven't just stopped doing that. In fact, what, what people, what's giving that impression to people is they yeah. aren't all that prone to rattle at you anyway, unless they feel it's clear and present they danger. I mean, most of the snakes you're coming across in the field, if they're not on the move, they're just sitting there. They're sitting there depending on camouflage because they know that they're sitting on a rodent trail and they're waiting for that rodent to come by. And they know that they don't have anywhere to go hide. They've sacrificed that defense, you know, a place to run and hide real quick. And so they're not going to let you know they're there until they think their life's in danger. So, you know, anytime I was collecting data on my snakes and they're in their hunting coils out under bushes or something, I'd have to touch them before they'd rattle. 
So that's probably what's given people that impression. But that, yeah, it's a big myth. It's been uh, sensationalized in the wow. last five, five, ten years or so. So everybody just expects it, like, to be walking out and just constantly rattling and going yeah. for – okay. That's right. But as soon as they do that, everybody knows they're there. Everybody knows where you are. Predators yeah. have adapted to them, and they know that they can kill a rattlesnake without getting too, too damaged, you know. They have predators to worry about, and so they're not going to let them know they're there. Gotcha. Huh. Fascinating. So basically, um, they they hibernate, correct? Right? They go into dens uh, and hibernate for the uh, winter. The temperate oh. species do. High elevation okay. or temperate species do, but tropical ones don't. Tropical and subtropical. Now, is there a difference in you know their systems as far as like uh, I mean, is that why they're shutting down and absorbing their organs because of of something like that? They're not eating through that time frame. Is there a difference between the two? You know, because that evolved for the time frame between meals and not because of a season. Gotcha. Now, it, it may benefit, you know, it probably helped the evolution in those temperate regions because they could shut it down for the whole winter or something. But I think initially that would have been evolved to help them between meals. Um, what it does do is, is in the context of biological time, those uh-huh. separate species could be living a lot longer because they're dormant for long, large periods of their life, you know? So biological right. time is much, I guess, longer, you'd say for those species because, or, or yes, I can't remember which way to look at that. Um, if they're only active for like the midget faded rattlesnakes in Wyoming, they're only active for like four months out of the year. Uh, right. And so these snakes will live to be 30, 40 years old. Whereas, you know, I don't think you're going to find a 30 or 40 year old neotropical rattlesnake because, you know, they're active year round. Their metabolic rate is going to be, well, their metabolism is going to be much more active. Uh, they're going right. to have that much more time subjected to their predators. So right. you get a difference in that respect, but I don't think uh, what you're mentioning there. Okay. Wow. Okay. What do you got, Owen? <laughs> uh, just, uh, I don't know, like vipers have always been one of those like really cool things. Would you consider, uh, I, I mean, I, I know we're talking like there is the hybridization through uh, rattlesnakes. Have you seen hybridization in other types of like well-known vipers or anything like that? Like, is there hybrid gaboons or anything like that? Because this is something I've never thought about. Uh, it seems to me I've seen um, hybrids with the gaboon, and their their closest relative is the rhino, rhinoceros viper. Right. I think I've seen hybrids between those two. They're very closely related, and they have very different evolutionary histories. So uh, I would I don't know enough about the old world vipers and their diversity to know which ones are more closely related than others, aside from their scientific name. You know, all the all the bitis I'd imagine are pretty closely related and, and could potentially. Uh, hybridized because the difference between species and genus mm. uh, up to that level is not all that much. That's still pretty closely related. You get up to different families of snakes and stuff, and then then we're talking some major differences and probably not the ability to hybridize. Although, I've been totally surprised by the hybridization between the pythons from different continents. If they're on different oh, yeah. continents, then, then they <laughs> have departed their evolutionary path by right. millions of years, you know. Uh, so to, to see a ball python hybridize with a woma uh, or carpet python, for that matter, blows my mind because knowing what I do about the gen- how 
you know, what causes hybrids to become sterile and stuff like that genetically. I just mm. don't know how they're compatible. And then, and then those hybrids can reproduce too. They're viable. So that doesn't make right. any sense to me. I think there's a lot to be learned there that would probably break through some ceilings in a, some of our understanding of genetics if someone actually looked at that. But like I said, most people, as far as genetic studies go, have avoided hybrid zones because it's just too much to sort out, too complicated. <laughs> so right. what we should do is put it to the test and take a spider tail viper and try to breed it to a diamondback is what you're saying. To have a rattling spider tail just monster bill. <laughs> like, you know, that would be yeah. awesome. But that, is, <laughs> that that species blew my this, mind when I, I saw love those that things. Thing. Oh my I gosh, I never knew that yeah. this week. Oh wow, but, that, that is cool. cool. <laughs> but take anyway. a lure ring take it to a whole different Yes. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> but that, yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, let's not do that. No, let's not breed them with diamond effects. Anyway, but uh, I, I mean, our, uh, like getting back onto the topic of like uh, snake digestion a little bit, there are some species that kind of hold on to the bowel movements, kind of like the large vipers, like gaboons and short tails. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of thinking to why they do that or even um, what that does with their digestion to be backed up like that? You know, I I hadn't noticed that until you mentioned it. Um, I mean, I have some I have some good ideas as to what's going on there. Uh-huh. Um, but by short tail pythons, you're probably mean the blood pythons and not the ball pythons, because I don't. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ball python. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. 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 Because the they're short tail no. python also. Um, yeah, the blood pythons. I haven't noticed that so much, but I feed my bloods. I, like I said, I feed everything really big items, and they they defecate for me almost every time I feed them, even the blood pythons. But it does make sense that that would happen, uh, understanding other things about their life history. Um, these, the, the blood pythons and a few other extreme examples like that are mm-hmm. extreme lion weight predators where they're probably not, they may not move for a couple of weeks um, until that prey item they're sitting on comes out and comes by. Uh, or they're going to be sitting weeks during the digestive process or whatever. So they just don't move much in general in, um, in captivity for sure. And I think the same thing's going on in the wild for those types of species. And so it would be beneficial to be able to hang on to that until you do move away from that site and then maybe leave it there as you move on or something because right. the feces are something that predators key in on and are certainly going to check out. So that way they can maintain a position in one area for longer periods of time without being detected. So that would be my logical explanation for that. But no, I haven't heard that. I haven't seen anything scientifically produced about that. The, uh, I'm I mean, thinking it's more of an ecological and evolutionary story. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I mean, I, I've heard that they use it so that they can have a weight to pivot for strikes and this, that, and the other hmm. thing. I, a lot of theories when it comes to that kind of stuff, but uh, there's obviously the noticeable difference between like what they do versus like an arboreal species, uh, say yeah. green tree python. Is that just mm-hmm. kind of what you were going into earlier where um, these guys are kind of at the ground and they sit and wait. And even though a green tree will spend a lot of time sitting, yeah, they're, they still are, predator. they're still, but they are more mobile or something. Maybe as I don't far know. as desiccating more frequently. 
Yes. Well, uh, just like the birds and the stuff that they're after up in the trees, all that feces is just going to drop to the ground and not compromise True. their position. So, I, so that's why I think that's the other end of the spectrum there, and you could see this as more of an ecological thing, you know? Okay. Has there have have you had any thoughts or uh, on why you see prolapse in something like green tree pythons as opposed to diet or digestion or? Yeah, I haven't experienced that with any of my snakes, but I've seen those pathologies um, in talking to people, vet, uh, veterinary friends, and stuff like that. It seems the majority of those prolapses. Um, uh, there's two main avenues that would could lead to that. Uh, one is in the pet trade, depending on what species it is, most of them, like green tree pythons and stuff, uh, are extremely inbred. You know, just a few lines come in and, and seed the breeding effort. And so you can have genetic problems that cause things like that. There's prolapses that are, are largely um, from inbreeding and stuff, just the problems associated with that. Um, that's if it's not something some other pathology, like something like um, parasites are a very big cause of prolapse, you know? So if you know that they'd have no parasites whatsoever, then I would, I would say it's probably uh, due to the inbreeding, just some bad genes in that area. Huh? Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, <laughs> just back up to the rattlesnakes real quick. Have you, have you ever been inside a rattlesnake den? I haven't been inside them because they're most of them are not chambers. They're crevices that are only a few inches wide, you know? Um, oh, okay. <laughs> you really can't shove your face I mean, in I'm there, thinking, Eric. I mean, that's I'm probably thinking, bad. No, I'm thinking <laughs> I mean, I know like, uh, I think, I think I saw it was Austin Stevens or something like that. And he like climbed into a rattlesnake oh. den and there's like all these rattlesnakes all over the place. <laughs> but, yeah. That, that may have been, a, an enlarged entrance to a den or something, but dens aren't okay. usually like that. And and they may oh, okay. they might have even fabricated that for TV. For TV, uh, yeah. generally, <laughs> yeah, generally you can tell where the uh, den is, but right. um, to to know where the entrance to the den is is almost impossible without a transmitter. All the dens that I almost all the dens I know of uh, are because I put a radio transmitter in the snake and they took me to their den and I saw exactly where they went in and when I turned to that spot that hole. You know, certain times of the year, there's lots of snakes piling out of it or something. But, no, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I've seen some bigger mouths to dens before the crevices in the rocks begin or something. But, no, not a big chamber you could crawl into unless it was uh, one of those African pythons or something like that. <laughs> what's what's the temperature difference, say, you know, during the, you know, uh, between inside the den as opposed to outside? Is it is it huge? Um it depends on where it's at. Uh, like, you know, even here in California, the snake, the rattlesnakes will hibernate for two, three months or something like that during the cold periods. But uh, they're more opportunistic because the winters don't get that cold where they're at. Um, on the other side, the major faded rattlesnake in Wyoming, they all of their dens are between 6,000 feet of elevation and 7,200 feet of elevation. So very high elevation, and the reason that they're only active for you know, four months out of the year, is in the cold of winter, it's regularly in the negative 10s, negative 20s, and stuff like that, and all the way up to the negative 60s in some cases. So, yeah, that wow. is a huge difference because they're always, you know, their body temperature always seems to be in the 40s, maybe even 50s down underground like that. You know, there's, mm-hmm. you get underneath that, that, le- that layer that's affected by the atmosphere, 
and, and mm-hmm. the temperature yeah. stabilize. Uh, they will fluctuate from beginning to end, of course. There will be a range, but uh, nothing they can't handle, and I don't think it would drop below the 40s even in those dens. Okay. I actually have a lot of data on that from when I was in grad school that I need to go back and look at because it wasn't something I was directly studying at the time. But, yeah, they're they're moving around in their den, so they're, they have temperatures to allow that. Huh. Even though it's negative 20 outside, you know, when I took the data. Would they still eat during that time if, if prey no, was available? No, they're, no. No. they're shut down. Okay. In fact, um, there were some captive studies where if the – two sizes, if the snakes – didn't have their babies for whatever reason they held on to them before they went into hibernation they almost always died and they're either going to regurgitate because they their digestive system just won't activate at those temperatures or they could die with that inside of them rotting you know so it's not a good thing that's not something they even try to do naturally gotcha they're smarter than that (laughs) yeah Yeah. what about uh what about, I know you said at the beginning, maybe you could hit a little bit on uh, colubrids, but how, how does that change when it comes to digestion? Because typically they have a higher metabolism, correct? Yeah. Yeah, from what I can tell. I mean, I don't have any direct scientific measurements of that. Like I said, I haven't looked into the literature to see if anyone else looked at colubrids while they're looking at other things. Uh, but right. I expect that they have a higher, just their, I'm guessing it's just their basal metabolic rate is higher. Because they they will still go through that big peak in metabolic rate. By the way, that that big peak for a week or two is called the specific dynamic action of digestion. Just it's a very uh-huh. specific process. Uh, so I know they do that. So I'm I'm suspecting their basal metabolic rate might be even if it was twice the basal metabolic rate of a rattlesnake. Um, that is something that is going to be significant. They're going to need a lot more food. They're going to drop weight a lot faster. So I, that's where I think the difference is, even though I haven't seen the data myself. Okay. So, um, so I know that like, it's just like almost like a constant feed. Is that just based on the fact that these guys are almost not ambush predators? I mean, not like, not in the sense yeah, they're, of they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's, a, I'm sure there's a spectrum there too. But most of the colubrids I'm used, I'm familiar with, at least in the wild, like I've, mm-hmm. I've studied gopher, gopher snakes in the wild as well, a couple of species like that, and all of those don't seem to be ambush predators at all. I mean, they'll take advantage of situations if they arise, but if you see a gopher snake coiled up, he's probably waiting to shed his skin or digest his food or pregnant female waiting to lay her Mm -hmm. eggs or something like that because otherwise they're constantly active from the time their body gets up to temperature uh to the time it cools down at night they're active they're moving you know whereas rattlesnakes no way does it it take more cal uh like more calories or a higher like bodied prey item to kind of get a colubrid up on a certain level i mean i have multiple colubrids and some i'll actually feed uh, chicken and chicks too, and it's almost like it passes like right through them, and nothing ever happens. But like a mouse or a rat can kind of almost get them higher in weight value. Is it kind of like that would be more important, and that's why we see like these thin little colubrids that are all bird eaters. Hmm, I, I'm not sure about that. I don't think I can offer anything for that. Okay. It's just, I guess, my own personal observations that I feed my guys and they crap in a box. 
So, you know, as far <laughs> as I go with that, it's like, you know, I'm going to have like all these wonderful, like really weird poop questions later, but it's, you yeah. know, it is what it is. Um, uh, but it's definitely very cool. I mean, do you have anything you can weigh in on things like uh, snake eating snakes um, where potentially prey is scarcer? Like, I don't know, a king cobra or something like that. Um, well, king cobra is a tropical snake, and there's usually a huge food web there, which means there's going to be a lot right. of snakes. Um, but they're going to be, if they're exclusively a snake eater, there's going to be fewer of that species of snake than others, I suppose, depending on how varied their their diet is. If they're eating more, I mean, if they're eating all species of snake, maybe there's not much of that. There's room for them in that same feeding guild or something. But, um no, I don't. It's just another mm. food source, and, and they're okay. not eating a ton of them. You know, they're just one contributor as a predator to those other species. There's lots of them that take those species. Here's a here's a, a question that comes up a lot of times. You see it from uh, people that that have pythons or boas or whatever, and they talk about um, pinkies versus hoppers uh, as yeah. starting baby snakes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, uh, one better well, than the other. I know, but uh, just the names Pinky and Hopper and stuff has more to do with just their size. Mm-hmm. Um, so then again, you're just talking about small packages of food versus large ones. And if you're going to feed more than one food item, like you mentioned that earlier, feeding more than one food item, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, or were you talk? Or was that a different context? No, no, no. I, I think I, I, I had it on the questions for sure. I think we hit on it a little bit. Okay. But yeah, yeah maybe that's what I got confused with. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I mean, a lot of my snakes won't take anything after they've swallowed one thing. So, um, right. even if you think that was a small item, you think, well, I'll give them another one. Cause that was a small food item. They won't touch it anyway. That's the way I'd say the majority of my snakes are, but then you have those that'll take as many things as you'll offer them. And maybe they'll end up regurgitating later cause they took too many. So that has more differences, I think. But the question about pinkies versus, hoppers and stuff is just a size thing and what people prefer to feed them. Uh, again, I always go for the biggest possible. I mean, I'm usually moving juvenile snakes onto adult mice long before most people do, uh, as long as I think they can handle it, meaning it's not too big a bulge in them, uh, maybe, you know, 30, 40%, and not more than that of their body weight. I'm always shooting for that higher end. Uh, so right. I'm, always looking to move up in size. And so for me, it's just a size thing and I prefer to feed larger food items less frequently, you know? Okay. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I think, I think the argument has always been that pinkies are just water where hoppers have, you know, uh, bone structure and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, no, again, um, yeah. Uh, uh, adult mouse or a hopper is probably going to have a little bit more mineralized bone than a pinky, but not a whole right. lot. I mean, most mammals have at least half of their skeleton is mineralized by the time they're born. Uh, and then it'll slowly finish meta- uh, mineralizing by the time they reach sexual maturity. But uh, right. that's just a little more calcium. So I, I suppose you could say that about it, that you are getting a little bit more calcium out of that. Now, how significant mm-hmm. or important that is, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it'd be a, you know, a little bit more, would be all that significant, but otherwise, like I said, I mean, the mammal is going to have the same nutritional value as any other mammal. 
Birds gotcha. are probably going to be different because they're a reptile. They're a warm-blooded reptile, which means right. they have more fat reserves and active organs and stuff, but more organ tissue at any given time. But they also have all those feathers, which um, you know, are just as indigestible as hair, I suppose. Uh, but it seems like it's the feathers are more of their body weight because they've lightened their load for flight so much. So those would be where the major differences, I think, uh, big, com- between completely different groups of animals rather than just two different kinds of rodent or two different sizes of rodent. Okay. So yeah. if we wanted to – I'm just – I wanted to throw this out there. If we wanted to, like, research this more, is there – do you have any papers specifically to look up or is there uh, something that you would recommend reading? Um Oh, let's see. There's, yeah, all that digestive physiology and the energy budget and everything, they've, they've finished all that and worked it all. It's all been published. Most of it's going to be in scientific literature and not in textbooks or something. No. However, um, the guy that really did figure out everything about it uh, found that the energy budget equations that they've had in physiology textbook for decades uh, are wrong. So he did rewrite that equation. But that's probably a little more in-depth than you need. If you just want to see more detail, see the graph that graphs how active the metabolism is and how it tapers off over time or whatever, uh, those things have been published, again, in the, mostly in the scientific literature. So I could give you a couple authors to look for. Uh, the main one sure. that did the best work and finished the work com- entirely, his name was uh, Stephen Beaupre, B-E-A-U-P-R-E. Uh, he is... Okay. Gosh, probably one of the leading, you know, reptile physiologists out there right now, and on a much larger scale. So he can actually use that information and extrapolate to humans or otherwise. You know, he's one of the big guns in that in that science. So that's where most of that work's going to be. Um, the South American lab is really good too. That was Augusto Abbey's lab. Uh, Augusto, like um, August with an O at the end, and A B E for the last name. So you can see the work that came out of that lab. That's actually the lab that my wife came from. And then cool. there's a German scientist that was kind of leading that research as well, kind of neck and neck with everybody. And his name was Matthias Stark, um, M-A-T-T-H-I-A-S-S-T-A-R-C-K. Uh, so those are some names that you can look up in the scientific literature, some of which would probably come up in Google Scholar or something to look at. Uh, cool. And then any any uh, physiology textbook because they actually have, you know, animal physiology textbooks. And that's where you're going to see this stuff trickling into the stuff that was most important. Um, And so if you look at any animal physiology textbook uh, dated after say 2010 or something like that, it's probably made it in them by, by now. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, there was I, the entire time we've been talking. I've been kind of picturing there was a long time ago. I watched some uh, uh, TV show where they fed a berm like a rabbit and then like X-rayed it like every day to kind of see mm-hmm. like the progression of the rabbit. I mean, it, are are we talking like these guys have like really really gnarly digestion enzymes, or is this no, pretty much it's on a, par with exactly everybody else? The same as ours. Yeah, the same as oh, ours. Right. They. they uh, they work at uh, different temperatures, perhaps, okay. uh, a little bit cooler than ours, let's say, on average. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're using virtually the same digestive um, enzymes. They're just having to 
rebuild the environment for it and hopefully have some temperature to provide for it as well. Um, another thing other than just that x-ray, what was fascinating instead of using an x-ray is to use an infrared camera on them while they're digesting because their okay. body temperature actually goes through the roof also. They're generating no so much way. heat that they're not dissipating it as quickly as they usually do because even though they're cold-blooded animals, metabolism of any kind in any cell, every cell of the body <laughs> generates heat. It just doesn't accumulate in cold-blooded animals because they're producing it so slowly. Uh, but when, they're, when they have those really high metabolic rates during digestion, they start glowing in those uh, infrared camera shots. Really cool. Uh, it's not a huge difference. That is like so cool. Maybe maybe three to five degrees Celsius different, you know, but that's right. pretty significant. Sure. So definitely something you could see on the background. Well, now, now I'm I'm sitting here thinking because we always have uh, the question of when pythons uh, have eggs, they will maternally incubate and they'll actually twitch uh, their that's muscles right. to generate heat. But now you're yep, telling me these things pretty much become – they they become like furnaces if they eat. So yep. we, some mothers will eat while on the eggs and some won't. So are they like making it easier for themselves by shoving a mouse in or rat in their mouth and cooking that up? That I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about that side of it, but because already most of those pythons that do incubate yeah. eggs in the wild in areas that might be too cold for it, they all do that shivering. Uh, and just you know, little contraction of muscles. Muscles generate huge amounts of heat compared to other cells in your body, you know, because there's so much energy being used to cause the contraction that you get that proportional amount of heat coming out of it. So that's the yeah. most efficient way to do it. And I, I suspect, although I haven't seen the numbers, I suspect that shivering is going to generate a lot more heat than just digestion, and indefinitely as long as they want to do it, you know. That is. Oh, cool. All right. Mm-hmm. Eric, I don't have maternally incubating mothers, but I'm going to run an experiment on yours. So yeah. uh, we we need an infrared camera, your females, and a mouse. So, you know, I'm going to grab out. So that is awesome. But uh, yeah. hold on. Somebody was posting up a question I thought it was a bit. Uh, um, would that also kind of be why certain times – a snake will eat and that like outside of the heat source and then return maybe to the hot spot to kind of chill because they're working up so much energy with that kind of stuff or heat. Um, I, if you're, you're talking about going to the heat spot to, for more heat. Yes. So, uh, no, I think what said that go ahead, Eric. I think what they were saying was, is that um, the pythons will wait a bit after a meal before returning back to the heat source. Right. Oh, no, I, I see just uh, I, I in my experience. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, generally speaking, um, all snakes, whether they're eating, digesting, any, any activity they have, they're happier at higher body temperatures. Although we call them cold-blooded animals, they function best at body temperatures very close to our own, uh, at least as far as reptiles go. Uh, amphibians right. can function on much colder body temperatures, but reptiles in general like to have a body temperature very close to ours. Uh, usually, I don't know. Between 30 and 33 degrees Celsius, I'd imagine, which is a bit a few degrees cooler than us, but that's where they want to be. So whether right. no matter what their activity is, if their body temperatures, you know, down in the 70 uh, 70 degrees Fahrenheit area, they're going to want to get back up there. They just have this drive to maintain that temperature up there as long as they can. Um, now, depending on what they're doing, like a male, 
uh, during the breeding season, he's spending so much time looking for mates that he sacrifices those optimal temperatures. So their temperatures on average are quite a bit lower and more erratic than, say, a female that is uh, that has is pregnant or it, or any snake that's digesting food. They keep their body temperature much more religiously at that perfect spot. Um, so they, wouldn't that be behavioral thermal regulation is pretty complicated. Wouldn't that be better for the male anyway, as far as like uh, sperm production and oh uh, yeah, uh, that's well they, with being for all colder? their bodily functions. No, for all their bodily functions, sperm production or otherwise, it's going to uh-huh. be the same temperature. Uh, if it was different, okay. like mammals, then the testes would be outside the body, and that's why most of our okay. mammal species have testes outside the body because, um, you know the for whatever reason, the enzymes that produce the sperm don't function at regular body temperature. But that, gotcha. you know, all reptiles, their gonads are inside of them, so it's going to be subjected to that. It, it's probably going to be optimal at the optimum temperature for everything else. Gotcha. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we do have some closing questions that we can kind of hit on real quick. These are the kind of like fun ones that you should really, you know, could be di- very difficult or very easy. So, yeah, um, uh, and that would just be, Josh, if you could have any reptile on the planet without limitations, whether it be by law, uh, money, or any other thing, what would it be and why? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's probably kind of simple. Um, as far as reptiles go or snakes, uh, that that rhinoceros viper has always been my favorite. When I lived in Wyoming during graduate school, they, I had one for a little while, uh, but lost it during a heat spike. Um, just love those. I mean, I would love to keep all those old world vipers. They just fascinate me too, but their venom scares me. So I'm, I'm all right with the rattlesnake venom. I'm pretty sure I'd survive one of their bites, but boy, that's a whole different story with, you know, any of those venomous species, species outside of the United States. Right. But, um, so, but, there That's was a what's special, preventing me from keeping him. <laughs> there was a special eons ago with that with there was some guy who was in like a acrylic cage or something in Vegas with a bunch of venomous animals, and it was like a really weird thumb stunt. But one thing they did that was cool is they took vials of blood and like injected different snake venom into it, and then like poured it out, and like one came out yeah. like jelly, the other one like blew out like it was nothing. It was really cool so yeah i can get that why that would be terrifying <laughs> so yep. um so the next one is if you could go herping anywhere in the world where would you want to go and what would you be hoping to find oh yeah that's another good one i've i've got a list of those i'm hoping to get to them one day um <laughs> australia has always been at the top of my list i really can't believe i haven't made it there yet uh but that the diversity they have there, just how dangerous all those animals are there. That, that I think is awesome. I've always had that mm-hmm. spot in my heart. Uh, but having said that, I probably will end up going to Madagascar or New Guinea or, you know, New Caledonia. Um, those are all places I'd really like to go. And I'd love to see the Solomon Island boas in the wild too. So any, any of those Indonesian islands where they're at would be cool, but big trips. Um, yeah, I think if I really had to prioritize, you know, Galapagos might be at the top. Uh, not a huge diversity of reptiles there, mm-hmm. but just that evolutionary history is really cool. Followed by Madagascar and New Guinea, probably. That's awesome. Like, you know, mm-hmm. 
That would be so cool. And uh, with my latest kick of Madagascar and uh, uh, snakes, I kind of want to go too. Anyway, but um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's really cool. So uh, what is the best way to follow you on social media, uh, a website? Uh, maybe if we uh, wanted to kind of read into maybe some of the research that you're getting involved in. Uh, if you can show us very pretty pictures of hybrid reptile, hybrid rattlesnakes in your mind, <laughs> how would we uh, track you with that stuff? Yeah, I don't really have too much like that. Um, I'm kind of getting, I'm a lot older than the millennials, so I'm not into mm-hmm. most of that social media. Facebook is about the only social media I do, and really only did that because I lived in Georgia for a while and I was pretty isolated from my friends and family. So my Facebook page is mostly personal stuff, although anything I'm doing professionally, I'll usually post up there too. Uh, I do have a a website that has everything about me that I use more professionally. I offer that to my students. They can find the syllabus there too, but it has lots of, you know, photo sites. Like um, up until a few years ago, I was posting my pictures there instead of Facebook. So I have lots of photo galleries and just, you know, my CVs there with all my experience and everything I've been involved with. Uh, and that's uh, snakedoctor.net, S-N-A-K-E-D-R.net. Awesome. Okay. So, cool. very cool. Well, thanks for uh, filling us in and queuing us in. And I want to see hybrid pictures of rattlesnakes because I have no <laughs> idea what they look like. And crazy shit is going through my head right now, and I want to know what the hell is going on there. So, All right. that is awesome. Uh, All right. Well, well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. All right. Bye. Have a good night. Man, tons of info in there, man. Woo. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of different angles, and there's even a lot of stuff that like I like crap was going through my head where I'm like, what about this? And I'm like, you know, that's it isn't. But what I found the most interesting is that I always was always always taught that uh, the the, the the stomach acids in a snake were so freaking gnarly and, you know, bad that they could digest things so quickly. And that's why they were able to do all the things. But, like, for it to be just the same as ours, you know, it gives me hope yeah. that I can swallow a whole mouse and it will digest properly. So, I think there's a lot of things that we think we know when we really don't yep. know. You know, and talking to a guy like Josh and just makes you realize how much we don't know, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, well, the problem is, is that we get we get so swept up into the rumors and the gossip and the theories of the hobbyists, which, yes, you know, there's a reason that every time we try to label something as a genetic mutation and how it acts, we're freaking wrong. OK, that's not how that works. <laughs> like, you know. Like the like you know scientists are like no that's not a thing but we can't break free of it because it's so ingrained in the hobby so of course we have all these misconceptions about things so like it just would co-dominant be, you mean co-dominant yeah that what the hell are you talking about like you know so I think Travis Wyman punches the wall every time he hears somebody say co-dominant codom 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 yeah. You know no, that is incorrect. <laughs> no, uh, do it. God damn it! I told you. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that would be pretty cool, and you know, uh, it's a little bit uh, more of a nerdier topic, but uh, I dig that kind of stuff. So uh, I like know. that. Well, it's cool stuff to know, and it's also cool stuff that you didn't even think about. I mean, 
but when you when you consider the animals that you're looking at, it does make a lot of freaking sense. So, um, absolutely, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, cool show. Um, all right. Well, uh, I don't know. I guess since we do have uh, quite a few minutes, and we didn't hit it at the beginning because I wanted to get Josh on here, was uh, so how's yes. the season shaping up? Uh. I feel a little bit more confident than I did before I left Tinley Park because I took a few days away from my guys and coming back, it's like, well, let me go through. And I'm like, well, you seem thicker. You seem bigger. Your belly scales have popped out. You two are locked up. It's like, eh, all right. So having gone through everything tonight, I have a jungle female that's going to drop probably at the end of uh, next week. If I miss that, I, I don't know. Calendar to February. I don't know what's going on anymore, Eric. So, you know, uh, that's one of those things that we have to deal with. But uh, so I got the jungle doing that. And then I have, uh-huh. I think, two, two coastals after her. And then shortly after her comes the Super Caramel, comes the Woma. It's like I, there, there's, there's quite a few. And then the season isn't over yet because the Dominican Red Mountain Bows were locked this morning, my second pair. So, you know, and all the colubers are still breeding and the bread lie are just warming up and being paired. So I feel confident. I don't have any eggs. I'm not like drowning in eggs like you yet, but, uh, hopefully we'll see. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So, well, uh, it's, yeah. It, it, I'm, it's I'm not one of those things. I'm not quite drowning in eggs. I don't know if I would not say yet. that. Not <laughs> yet. Not yet. You know. So I'm at the, it's, it's again, I find it interesting and we kind of, we've said this before and talked about it, but uh-huh. uh, all the IJs, every IJ clutch that I tried have gone and um, <laughs> <laughs> they all went first. Um, uh-huh. Which is normal, which, but all right. Yeah, which is, you know, like kind of what uh what the thought is that that they go first and um right. Now I'm at the coastal uh and some of the crosses and it's like I thought that they would have laid by now, but um clearly I think it might be another week. But okay. the crazy thing is is that they're all going to go at one time, man. <laughs> And uh, boom, like you're, you're going to be woken yeah. up by the sound of eggs, like hitting the ground. It's going to be that loud. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it should be cool. Um, so are you getting but, anything, are you getting anything like off the wall? Like how's the olives doing or anything like that? Well, the white lips have decided that they've had enough of each other. So, um, what went from like, ah, they're kind of getting along to, I've had to separate them three times already, uh, the past two weeks. Um, and I think it's just that they're hungry. So, uh, I am going to separate them and give them both big meals and let them kind of be alone for a week and then back together. Uh, because I thought out a mouse to feed, uh, the beaded lizard that I have here and the female white lip bit oh, the male. Yeah, and I forgot them up. About that. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I have a beaded, um, there's, uh, Andrew had his pair of beaded and unfortunately uh, something ended up happening and it went from a pair of beaded to a male beaded. 
So uh, he's like, he's probably going to end up selling this guy. And uh, I had some open cages and literally he was supposed to bring them with us to Tinley park. So he went to pack them up and the female was found DOA in the cage, which sucks, but that sucks. So he put the, put the mail and he dropped the mail off with me and the mail's just kind of been hanging out. And, uh, uh, uh the, him and the female must've got into it because his eyes were kind of swollen or whatever the hell, but I washed them off and his eyes popped open and he's being his normal self, but he was really cool, uh, until he kind of got his bearings and now he just freaking hates me. And I'm like, really? You were so cool. So chill. Like I was kind of petting you and it was all good. I was holding you. Now it's like two hooks. I mean, cause he just is trying like hell to spin around and bite me. So, uh, hopefully he settles down a little bit, but it's definitely been one of those that these eye opening things of, they're not as easy as I thought they were going to be. So, right. Uh, I don't know. They may have broken the beaded window, but, uh, either way, He's totally freaking cool, and he's awesome. I just am uh, taking the precautions of using hooks with him. I'm, and I know that some jerk is going to send me a video of him, like, grabbing his beaded, like, by the tooth or whatever, and going like, yeah, look at I don't care. This is what I'm doing. So, got it. Uh, but, no, he's still pretty badass, and I, I took a video of him hanging out on the carpet of my snake room, and he was getting all puffy and hissy but he was still still cool that's awesome i'm uh, attempting to I, convince myself not to buy him from eric is what i'm trying to oh uh, not to buy him from andrew. andrew so i'm trying and it's Dude, not working should. so you should you should, you should man <laughs> They're so i hate cool. you so no you're <laughs> not helpful all right you got medical you do a long-term payment plan with him Come shut on, man. up all right <laughs> shut up i know these things that you're telling me, but you can't tell me these things anymore. <laughs> so I have, I have two things that, that I want to close on. One, go ahead. What, what episodes of Morelia Python radio were you listening to? Oh my God, home? it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> he made me listen to myself and I got mad, but why? Uh, no, Andrew, well, I don't want to listen to me. It's no, like, no, no. I mean, why I'm, did he make you listen to yourself? Cause he knew that it, he knew I didn't want to because oh, uh, I gotcha. we, we were talking about it with uh, Brian Waterloo, uh, who is the lace monitors because he wanted to do uh, a, he wants to do a podcast with Andrew about mm-hmm. monitor lizards. And of course they're all talking about how the monitor community is kind of fractured. So they want to uh, copy carpet fest and do a bunch of other stuff. So of course we were talking with them which led to uh, Brian going like, well, where can I find your podcast? And I'm like, you can look at it up on any possible place that you get your podcast from. It's, and I, I channeled you and I'm uh-huh. like, uh, you can, like, and I just repeated the thing I've heard you say like for, for six, six years. years of my life. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it just, <laughs> it just came out, but um, so he looked it up and he selected and now he's copying NPR and stuff like that. And he's going to listen to it. And then, uh, Andrew, like on the way home, we listened to a bunch of podcasts and much other stuff on the way down, and we kind of burned through a bunch of it. So on the way home, Andrew's like, huh, and he just pulls out his phone, and he goes, hey, you are there. I'm like, wait a minute, you never, you weren't a downloader of the show? And he's like, no. I'm like, but it was, but it's me. And he's like, I'm, I'm like, I'm not, he's like, I'm not a snake guy. I'm like, all right. I'm like, wait a minute, you were a guest on the show. He goes, yeah. I'm like, all right. 
then he hits it. And I guess because I was so flabbergasted, he goes, we're going to listen to episodes now. I'm like, and I begged not to, but uh-huh. I was forced to listen to, I think, um, we listened to uh, the Berm, the last Berm show we just did. Uh, oh, okay. And he was very impressed with your knowledge of Burmese pythons and other things and the fact that you were pronouncing stuff like, I'm like, Eric's not an idiot. I'm like, you know, I don't know why you're, but <laughs> we're not more like, you know, he's like, you yeah. guys actually know what you're talking about. I'm like, why do you say that so shockingly? Like, I was, so then we kept going through that and uh, he, he eventually took pity on me and just put on music because every five seconds I would like start talking and just start like making horrible, pitiful noises with the right. fact that I had to hear myself and be like, Oh God, you laughed. And no one laughed with you, you <laughs> idiot. You just, and oh God, and it was horrible. But nice. now Andrew now follows the show. So it only took oh, okay. a very long car ride to get that done. So Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. That's cool. Now I have, uh, I'm going to tell a little story. Um, and we're going to go back to 2008. Okay. What the hell are you doing? And has Rob Stone helped you? Like what no, is no, no, happening no. right it, now? No, this has nothing. Right. This, this isn't all an right, embarrassing right. story. Okay. This, all right. Uh, I panicked. I panicked a little bit. I apologize. <laughs> you know, you know how I always talk about perception and all that kind of yes. stuff. Yes. And I'm not going to go into that. But however, um, I go back. It's 2008. I'm just coming yep. into the carpet python world. And I'm going on MP and I'm I'm looking at all these different people and the one one of the guys that stood out to me was John Battaglia. Morelia Trophy Club. You know, uh looking at his Jags, I'm looking at his, you know, just his his overall approach to things, his like he's got the creme de la creme, you know, blah blah blah. And I I'm just like Thinking that number one, you know, would it be possible for me to own one of his snakes in my collection? That was that's the first thing that kind of goes through my head, as far as um, you know, uh, a goal, right? Yeah. So John messages me the other day, and he says uh, he's like, I just updated my website, and I have a yeah. link to your website on my information page. <clears throat> Check it out. So Am I linked on there? Probably not. Anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> so, well, I did this thing on Jags, right? So, you know. I know. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I know. No, it's thing, fine. Go on. <laughs> yeah. So my website is like constant, like I, I, it's never finished because I, I want it to be like, uh, you know, an encyclopedia of 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 pythons that, you know, when I'm right. done, which it never will be. So it's like constant, it's a constant like, thing you know anyway you know i i thought about it and i'm like wow you know here i am almost 10 years later and the guy that one of the guys that i looked up to is now you know linking my website to hib's website you know what i'm saying like that's well you know it's like that's it's such a cool thing it is you know i mean I was the dopey kid hanging around Jason Balin's table trying to talk to him about the same goddamn tiger carpet. Like he must, and the fact that I can text him right now and stuff like that. And it it, it is very cool. And it kind of also holds true that the, if you put your time in, 
you'd be surprised. And I've used your website when it comes to the, um, the, the kind of encyclopedia, the breakdown of all the carpified dons with, uh, new cl- new uh customers who kind of don't really know how stuff works i'll link them directly to you uh or that morelia python radio website to kind of give them the first-hand knowledge so yeah right it's kind of like a living breathing book that will continue to keep writing itself which is awesome so yeah i just thought it was you know and it made me take a step back and it made me think about like you know uh, just how I approach new people that are coming in, you know, because at one point I was this new person and I was welcomed in, you know, and now am I doing, the, am I paying it forward? So to speak, you know, mm. am I, am I, am I doing the same things that, that people did for me? Because you, you got to remember Like, I know people think like the Morelia community today is kind of like, you know, hard to get into or like can be kind of like, um, I don't know what the right word is, but back then, man, it was, it, you, 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 you couldn't just be a nobody and come in and start spewing shit because people would be like, <laughs> shut up with your nonsense. We don't care. You know? And I, I don't know. I just see things. I, I don't know, man. I just see like, it, I guess it's a different world. Information is shared different and you know, that kind of changes the whole thing. But, um, I don't even know what I, what I, what I meant by that, but or why I even said it. I just thought it was cool to share that, you know, ten years ago, I I, I would be honored just to talk to that guy, you know. Yeah. And now he's linking my website to his website, which, you know, I don't know. I I guess it's pretty cool. <laughs> That's all I got. You know, I don't I don't know how else to say it, but uh, good stuff. And uh, I think next week. Um, I was trying to line up a ring python show, but the guy that um, was supposed to come on, he just didn't feel confident enough to to talk about it. So apparently there's another person um, and I got to get in touch with her um, okay. because, uh, you know, she's into ring pythons. And Well, just so you think that I wasn't doing anything in Chicago, I have two shows that I have to talk to you about that we can get lined up. So, okay. Aha. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Is it something you want to say now or you want to well, no, no, well, <laughs> uh, keep me waiting? No, or? no I don't. I want to, I'm, I'm done. No, it, actually it's, uh, 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 it's obviously Brian Waterloo with the lace monitors and then possibly bringing Andrew on as well to do another monitor show, uh, covering, uh, some of the either harder species like the lace monitor, the blue tail and the crocodile monitor, um, or just all monitors in general. So, you know, we'll go with those as number one. And then the second one is I spoke to Mr. Zirkel over at Zirkel Reptiles with the Asian rat snakes uh, and all the colubrid stuff over there. And he said he would be willing to come on as well to talk about his breeding of uh, all the old world rat snakes uh, from the uh, Chinese king rats and all those other big lovely things as and he also has some experience with things like uh, Kribo and stuff like that. So, yes. Okay. Line it up, man. <laughs> well, now I have to do all the, Oh, God damn it. All right, yeah, I, I thought I would just, I thought I would just I can tell take you a couple weeks off. Woo-hoo. No. <laughs> damn it. This is why I don't try to, think, to do things. All right. Anyway, yeah. I'll figure it out. So. 
Yeah. yeah. Just tell uh, we're pretty much wide open right now. So uh Sweet. All right. Know, I'll work you, on you it and then we'll we'll figure it out. Well we gotta talk. I you and I gotta go sit down and talk anyway at some point, because uh, we gotta start carpet fest shooting, so I imagine that'll happen. True soon. story. Shell. I'm looking at some of your pictures of uh the bell phase. Oh, aren't they gorgeous? <laughs> yeah, they're pretty badass, man. I, I I didn't want them. I was like, hey, it's what I, I don't I don't understand what people see in these things in here. Seeing them in person, I'm like, dear God, I want one. And that's the problem is out of all the monitors that I've been exposed to with Andrew, the ones I would consider keeping, or the ones that I want, are like a lace monitor, a crocodile monitor, and a blue tail, which is like teeth, teeth, claws. It's like you know, are you freaking kidding me? So, but they're gorgeous. Wow, cool. Yeah. Pop ones, I see it. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I'm flipping yeah. through the pictures as we say it. Go ahead. You can flip Dude. through all you wish. <gasps> Did you go by? I see you just pulled up um, uh, their dwarf retics. Did you go by yes. uh, Garrett's yes. car table? Yes, I, yes. I went, I went by Garrick and I introduced myself and like he didn't know who I was in like the first like two seconds. And I'm like, and then I like, because I think my badge was turned around, so I introduced myself. He and I shot the shit, and he actually uh, was selling a dwarf retic to this very lovely couple who I didn't get their names because I'm an idiot and a jerk, and they were buying it, and they said they had never heard about dwarf retics until they heard the episode of NPR. So I got to introduce myself to them, and I'm like, thank you for listening. You know, I'm, I'm glad you grabbed this. Obviously, this is like, you know, uh, this very cool animal and stuff like that. And also I'm like, and now I don't have to buy one cause you know, you did, but they were so <laughs> tiny. It was so yeah. cool. Look at the, look at that shit. Like they had, he had a, he put a breeding male in the auction, the size of a freaking corn snake. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so that his was booth, cool. His booth his is booth pretty cool. Was awesome. Apparently yeah. he was supposed to have a whole big, setup and there was like you know confusion or whatever so he had to leave like a good portion of his cool stuff that he was telling me about off display and i'm like well set it up in your hotel room I'll, we'll just start doing tours there i don't care like yeah whatever <laughs> so but that was that was cool uh i i got to meet the guys uh from uh the the guy from reptilinks uh came up to me during the auction i introduced myself to him uh which was cool uh and uh I was watching uh, Tim's table, the, the, the gecko guy that we know. Um, and uh, somebody just came up out of blue and I was just standing there like trying to make sure nobody stole anything. And he comes right. up out of nowhere and says that he listens to the podcast and he loves the show and thank you for putting it on and all this other stuff. So it was a really, really cool uh, experience. And uh, you know, it, I only had to refer to you and your short stature several times. So, you know, <laughs> he's so short. You can't see him now, right? <laughs> I he's like, I always oh, in my backpack. Like, you know, so it was a lot of that stuff, but it was a, it was a good time. Good show. Uh, you know, very much liked it. So cool. All right. Well, let's, uh, I think, like I said, um, next week it will probably be just me and you, um, cool. there's some, some stuff that uh, we can hit on um, some articles and stuff that I've seen pop up and, you know, hopefully we'll have more to talk about yeah. as far as the season goes and stuff like that. 
Um, and as far as us, you can check out our website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Uh, our email is info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Um, if you are interested in um, some of the, you know, I, I call it show notes, um, you can follow it over, go to the website, go to the news page, and you'll see it, NPR blog, just click on it. By the way, I got to give a shout yeah. out to um, Scott Borden. He's doing a pretty <clears throat> awesome job with his uh, blogs as of uh, late. Um, yeah. You know, um, I don't know. He just, is. I mean, he is the prince. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he's 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 been hitting on some 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 pretty tough topics. I mean, you know, yeah. there's, there's a lot of uh, everybody has their own sort of opinions on things and whatnot. But uh, for the most part, uh, topics that he's are hitting on are. Um, you know, well thought out and uh, he offers a good perspective on them. So if you have the opportunity, you should definitely check it out. He posts them all over the place, um, but he's doing a good job there. So anyway, um, that's where you can find uh, our uh, show notes uh, and pictures and stuff uh, that came up or, um, you know, uh, maybe links to uh, different papers or stuff like that. Uh, so that's that. As far as myself, ebmorelia.com. Uh, my uh, email is eric at ebmorelia.com. I thought we were going to be, since today's the first day of spring, uh, however, we're about to get plummeted with nope. more snow. <laughs> so <laughs> shipping, eh, probably it. not happening for another month. But uh, that's good because that will give me plenty of time to get stuff together and uh, start putting some snakes up for sale because – yeah, I got to stop hoarding everything and start uh, start releasing some stuff. So uh, look forward to my that. My God, uh, you can follow me on Facebook, uh, my Facebook page, Ebi Morelia, and on Instagram there. And uh, I probably probably the next YouTube video I'm going to do is going to be on Papua and Pythons. <laughs> so <laughs> look forward to that. Uh, but that's all I got. Cool. Uh, what you can do is go to rogue-reptiles, check out all the stuff we got going on at Rogue. Uh, and you can also go to Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com. Give us a like over there and uh, see all the stuff we got going on uh, on Facebook. As far as shows go, uh, I will be vending the Oaks Pennsylvania Reptile Show at the end of the month uh, with my friend Andrew Wellen. Uh, he's going to be selling some monitors and I'm going to be selling some carpets. Uh, it's a little bit of a smaller show, but it's still a nice show. So if you are in the area uh, at the uh, Oak Show, stop by, say hi. Uh, we'll gladly talk shop and, uh, you know, see some stuff. Uh, that's all we have for everybody today. So thank you all for listening. And we're going to catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night.